0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, yesterday the Ontario government announced the school year will not be resuming in the classroom. What does this mean? We'll talk with the Hamilton Board of Education about that. Employment lawyer Andrew Goldberg joins us for his weekly segment. We'll discuss what happens next for workers who have been temporarily laid off. It also gives us an update on that HBC situation. And could the Commonwealth Games be a recovery project for the city of Hamilton? Lou Frupporti, spokesperson for the Hamilton 2026 group, joins us to talk about that. The Bill Kelly Podcast. Starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with, as uh, we heard yesterday, and I guess as a lot of people anticipated, Ontario Premier Doug Ford and uh, Education Minister Stephen Lecce, among others, uh, with their daily uh, report on what's going to be happening here in Ontario with COVID 19, uh, made it official that uh, the there will be no more classroom, no more classroom schooling here in the province of Ontario. Here's what the Premier had to say
1: The safety of our children is my top priority. And one thing I will never do is take unnecessary risk when it comes to our children. And that's why, after careful consideration, after consulting with the health experts, it is clear that we cannot open schools at this time. I'm just not going to risk it.
0: Uh, and uh, there are ramifications to this as well. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Alex Johnstone. Alex is the trustee and, of course, the chair of the Hamilton Wentworth District School Board here in the Hamilton area. Alex, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. How are you doing?
2: Good morning, Bill.
0: Good to have you with us today. Uh, not totally unexpected, the, uh, the word from the Premier yesterday, was it?
2: No, not a, it was not a surprise at all for most people
0: so talk to us about what has entailed now i know the last time you were on the program a couple of weeks ago i guess it was uh you had told us that oh, you guys are planning for this but you have to look at both eventualities here yes there's going to be classroom time or not so this does not catch you guys off guard uh, what what's the plan going forward now for the hamilton board
2: well i think that yesterday's announcement still leaves us with many questions uh we are continuing to look at time frames, so the immediate and um, also the return to school. So uh the the minister actually referred to summer schooling uh being reopened. So one of our big questions is what does that look like? Is it uh will students be returning to our physical schools? Um, or will it be a blended approach or will it be online or perhaps a mix-up of all of those? Um so we, we're looking at that. We're also uh we've had a contingency team, planning uh, team in place for for a while now. Um, they are looking at all kinds of different facets for uh, when uh, when we do have our schools reopened. So from very much a safety perspective, we're looking at uh, PPE, we're looking at, uh, what rules and regulations need to be in place. We're looking at other school districts. We just saw France reopen um, and with that, they had over 70 cases immediately. Um, we have seen child care centres uh, as close as Toronto where they have had cases. So we're we're watching those realities and, and we're making notes Um we will be looking for direction from, um, from the minister, which is supposed to come, uh, in June, mm-hmm. who is, you know, apparently working with experts across the country. But we also really want the ministry to be working with local school boards. Oftentimes these announcements are made. Uh, we are the last to know. We find out through the media many times. And it means that we're in, um, not as great a position to, to respond or to have proper input. And we know our processes, we know our students, we know our staff, and we're also very closely connected to our own local health, public health officials, and that's where we all need to be working together. And I would hope that school boards are not the last to be informed uh, this time around and that we truly are partners in the process.
0: I know that uh, initially when we were listening to the Premier and the Education Minister yesterday, there was that concern about, okay, there's no classroom time. I guess now we're looking to September. But you brought up a very, very important point here, summer school. I mean, there are students that uh, will need that summer school session to, to increase their marks. It, may, it could be entry into post-secondary. It could be any number of different reasons why they need to do this. And uh, as of today, I guess you guys really don't know what the protocol is going to be.
2: Exactly and I think so right now our team is planning for all kinds of, of different outcomes and we recognize that this is this is a new reality for all of us that um, for all officials provincial, national, global um, that said we want to be a part of that process the whole way through um, and that's where, where we are looking at uh, what our needs are going to be. One of the other big questions that we have as a board of trustees is the finances. Um, so with uh Uh, with safety comes increased costs for PPE, uh, comes increased costs for uh, different rules and regulations to ensure that the safety and uh, health of our students and staff are absolutely paramount. So we also want to make sure that, uh, that the ministry is going to be providing school boards with a budget in order for us to do the important work that we need to do.
0: Yeah, let's talk about that. And, and the, the, I hate to use the phrase that everyone else seems to be throwing around, but the new normal. But I mean, that's this is the reality that we're facing. And anybody who's been in a grocery store or any of the stores that have been open has seen that. Of course, you've got the face masks, uh, you've got the, the plastic partitions up around cash registers and things of this nature. Uh, I'm, I'm sure there's been discussion about this, but what are classrooms going to look like going forward? You certainly can't have as many students in uh, as you did pre-pandemic, can you? So you've got to make some some adjustments for that and as you mentioned the physical layout of the classroom is going to have to be different
2: well and that's where we'll be turning to public health and that's where we will be looking uh to the ministry for guidance there but um uh, it, is, it is our public health officials who would be able to guide us best on what uh, the health and safety protocols uh, should look like. Um, but again, we're, we're watching and we see, we see in other countries and other jurisdictions, other provinces, where um, they are having cases uh, uh, take hold after opening. And we want to make sure that we get it right. If we're taking it slower as a province and as a... As a school system, we want to make sure that health and safety is paramount. And and that's where there, there does need to be financial resources in place. It, I, I like to believe in Hamilton that we, we've been leaders through this. Um, I look at the fact that we were the first in the province to strike an agreement with Apple. And that was within days after school closures were announced. And that was the model that then was carried out throughout the rest of the province. Um, But we did not receive an additional budget for tech, and uh, we provisioned uh, over 6,000 devices to students, uh, uh, devices, uh, some of which included internet, to ensure equity across the board. And so when we're looking at the new reality, it's, Uh, We need to make sure that there's proper financing for our health and safety as well as proper financing for the tech budget that needs to be introduced. Most boards are not in the position that HWDSB was where we have been making major investments all along. Some of them have been controversial uh, where the public had questions during the years about our enrollment of our, or I guess the rollout of our 21st century learning strategy. Now, during the pandemic, it seems like that was a a very good and strong decision. But most boards are not in that position. Most boards struggle with the fact that the majority of their um, students might not have quality internet, especially in rural or northern areas. So that's where the ministry absolutely needs to step up and ensure equity. um, As we we know that uh, there's going to continue to be bumps along the way where schools Um, or school boards either reopen and close, depending on what the local cases look like.
0: A couple of different things. I want to get into, as you say, the physical things and the PPEs and other things, and those are very, very essential as we go forward on this. But you brought up the idea about, and you have been, by the way, I think ahead of the curve uh, with a number of other boards, with what you guys have done with your deal with Apple and and some other stuff like that to make sure that students have these uh, things at their disposal. But... I'm hearing, and I'm sure you are too, Alex, an awful lot of concern from parents about online learning. Mm-hmm. Uh, as, as one parent told me over the weekend, they said, look, he says, I can cut it right, right, right the quick. If you're a really good student, you're probably doing well in this. If you're not, uh, a lot of students and parents, for that matter, are feeling lost. But this is the reality right now. How is the Hamilton Board dealing with that and dealing with the concerns that you're hearing from these par- families?
2: Well, we've been hearing those concerns too and that's where we just completed our thought exchange which was a public i guess parent engagement survey we've also done a similar survey with staff and we're about to embark on one directly with students we want is an organization and to be able to get feedback from our top stakeholders, our students, our parents, our staff, and uh, to ensure that we are responding to those needs. It doesn't mean that we're going to be able to immediately, um, uh, I guess, uh, give everyone exactly what everyone uh, wants, um, but it does mean that as we are making decisions, that we are looking to be nimble, we are looking to be responsive, and uh incorporate that feedback that also helps us with our planning for September. Um so you will be seeing a report come to the Board of Trustees uh on next Monday evening uh that has the responses from our uh, parents and guardians, uh, as well as the responses from our staff, and um, that is where we as trustees can can look to respond, and and where our system can look to respond, and ensure that those voices are heard. We want to uh, make sure that everyone feels supported, and a big part of that is is ensuring feedback.
0: Uh, and and from teachers as well because we've heard from Mm -hmm. a number of different teachers that are very frustrated by what's going on and and it's not a problem unique to hamilton it's something that's happening right across the province if not right across the country because we're all in the same boat here uh but it's it's a concern and i'm not so sure that the ministry is is aware of that but hopefully as you say this comes back to something i know you've talked about for a long time and so has uh uh, other people have uh, the board too is that there's got to be some channels of communication here between the ministry and the different school boards about what's happening in each particular situation and uh i'm I'm hoping that's going to be the case because obviously you've got to have some feedback you can't really do a one-size-fits-all right across the province can you alex
2: no and and we recognize that as well and um certainly i I would anticipate that from the um the reports that are brought to us next monday night that there will be a motion from the board of trustees uh in order to share the results with the province we also want them to know um how our our teachers how our parents are feeling and and how we as a system can better respond and um and that again it's uh we all need to be working together on this and that is where we want to see collaboration uh from the province we want them to be asking school boards how they they can better support us and uh we want them to listen to us when we say how um how, uh, the things that we need
0: Quick question for you, and, and, and this is another one of the concerns I've heard, and I just got a, an email here from uh, one of our listeners, Jacqueline, who's listening to our conversation this morning, uh, about the concerns raised. We talked about the online learning, but especially for uh, special needs students. Uh, I've talked to an education assistant, actually a couple of them that I've run into over the last couple of weeks, that are very frustrated. They're involved in the process, but they said, we just don't seem to have the resources, and we're not resonating. It just doesn't seem to be the same as this one-on-one situation that you can do in a classroom right now. So how is the board going to address some of the concerns from those parents that have special needs kids.
2: So our, our surveys that we just completed with both staff and parents, um, part of that does have, a, 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 I guess, there was a large component of responses regarding special education, and that's where we're now digger, uh, digging deeper into the data so we can be more responsive. I think that um, we, we truly have been flying the plane as we have been building it. And we have an excellent team um, headed by our superintendent, Peggy Blair, uh, as well as her, her entire team of uh, special education um, educators. And that is where we're trying to be nimble. We're listening to the feedback. We're, we're hearing what the challenges are, and we're trying to engage in some very creative problem-solving in order to support our students. I don't want to paint the picture is um, completely rosy either. Um, so I want to recognize the great work, but also recognize we are hearing the stress uh, from parents, from teachers, from students. And that is where we're looking to provide uh, support and looking at uh, new ways to, to think through problems and... Um, and come the fall, there will be a need to do assessments and to find out exactly where students are at and uh, in order to ensure that uh, we can better support them uh, uh, next year to get caught up because there will be gaps. And we know that we're very concerned about it. Uh, we're very concerned about our most vulnerable students, and uh, so that's part of the planning that we're putting in place for September is how we will assess those learning gaps and and provide the support that our students and staff need.
0: Again, like so many other things we've talked about uh, during this pandemic, uh, that particular concern is not just because of covid-19 i mean it's been happening before that the uh, ministry has been a little slow in, in responding to the, the funding that's required for a special needs uh, students and for the education assistance i know that uh, you have the best of intentions but uh, the money's got to start flowing from queens park for that and what this has done is really exposed some of those concerns and i hope it's going to be part of the discussion going forward and also about costing you mentioned about ppe's uh the redesign probably of classrooms and a number of other things that are going to be happening mm-hmm. uh and As Mr. Lecce, the education minister, mentioned yesterday, Alex, uh, he says within the next couple of weeks uh, they're going to have some announcements about exactly what's going on. So it's, uh, I guess, kind of hurry up and wait right now until you hear what they're going to do. But, boy, there has to be a discussion about where that money's going to come from.
2: Yes, there there does need to be. And especially, too, as you mentioned, around special education, um, I think that uh, that's an issue that our board has always raised. Uh, We receive one of the lowest pots of money, in the province for special education. And we have one of the highest rates of um, students who are identified uh, within the entire province. So that creates a huge gap. That means that every year we have to top up budget by several million, uh, three to five in order to ensure that our students get the supports that they need and that that means money coming from elsewhere in the budget so it is other boards don't have uh, those same challenges in Hamilton we are in a unique position where we have um, uh, and we are happy to have all the fantastic community supports um, children's uh, hospital Um, all of the the community autism supports, but it also means that there's uh, a larger number of families that are attracted to the area that we then also need to support as a school board. And the current budget process doesn't reflect that. So we've, in the 10 years of that been a trustee bill, every single year we communicate to the province that we need to have the funding model addressed. I think that um, uh, what I will say, though, in terms of overall for September, our team is already working on it, and uh, we are already reviewing all options, and um, uh, we are looking at the tech, we are looking at the PPE, we are looking at how we're going to need to support our students from an academic standpoint and ensuring that we assess them and get them caught up. So we are, we're not just sitting on our laurels waiting. Uh, we very much are engaged in active planning, and that's where we, we want the province to be engaging us as well at this time.
0: Well, more questions than answers, as you mentioned at the beginning of our discussion, so we'll see how this rolls out in the next little while. Alex, thanks so much for the time. We'll stay in touch over the next few weeks. Have a good day today.
2: Thank you, Bill.
0: Alex Johnston is the uh, chair, of course, of the Hamilton School Board. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Almost daily announcements now from the federal government about assistance programs, you uh, know, wage extension programs, top-ups for this. Uh, what's going to happen? Do you qualify? Uh, how long can I go on this, et cetera, et cetera? A lot of questions, right? Uh, so this is why we're doing our weekly segment, and uh, it's time for that once again with our good friend Andrew Goldberg. Andrew, of course, is a employment lawyer and associate at San Tumarkin to Mark and LLP. Andrew, how are you doing this week?
3: Short week, which I'm not complaining about, and it's pretty nice <laughs> outside, so could be worse.
0: Listen, i got to ask you a question. I was talking to a couple of buddies of mine over the weekend, and I think you and I have had this discussion over the last couple of weeks, too. I miss baseball. Baseball season should have started a long, long time ago. Uh, but baseball is impacted by this as other sports as well. There's a, a pitcher for the Tampa Bay Rays named Matt Snell, uh, and this kind of fits into exactly what you've been talking to us about over the last couple of weeks, Andrew. Uh, he has a contract to pitch for the Tampa Bay Rays, as most players do. Obviously, they have to have a contract to do this. Uh they're not going to play 162 games. So what a lot of teams are doing, and I guess what Tampa Bay has done, is they said, well, we're going to prorate your salary then. If we're only going to play like 82 games, we're not paying your full salary. And he says, you pay me full salary. I'm not playing for you this year. Uh, now, I know there's a contract but not, uh, you know, for 162, but can they actually do that? Can they simply say, we're only going to use you for half of those games so you're not going to get paid what you think you're going to get paid?
3: <clears throat> well, baseball is a bit of a unique situation just because it- – the union presence is so heavy there at the players' oh, yeah. association, So they probably have to work out their own, um, disputes. It would go through their own arbitration process. And they probably have something in the collective agreement that, uh, dictates, uh, exactly how that would work. I mean, for more, for one of the more kind of regular employees that is unfortunate enough to play major league baseball. Um, I think certainly, uh, To cut someone's wages and earnings in half is is pretty significant, and and an an individual in the normal course would not necessarily have to accept that. But when it comes to baseball, it's its own beast, so I'm not really one to speak on how that process would play out. I'd imagine that uh, the union would deal with that matter and take it to an arbitration or something like that.
0: Yeah, well, the, the Baseball Players Association, of course, is one of the strongest unions, but really the first one, I guess, with professional sports. And we know the storied history about how they came to be. Uh, but this is going to happen, I guess, with most professional sports now, isn't it? Because they're going to be playing uh, truncated schedules, not as many games. And uh, it's probably going to have to be a negotiation, I would think, uh, as, as has been the case in, in other situations where contracts are involved in this. But it's going to get pretty sticky, I would think.
3: Yeah, I would think so, too. I mean, personally, I love sports, so I'm hoping all these guys play from a very self-centered point of view. And I think people could use sports generally. I think it would be a big boost for morale if, uh, you know, in whatever capacity, whether there's fans in the stadium or not, or we're just simply watching it on TV, I think it would be great. And a lot of these guys are fairly well compensated. um, So you'd like to think that they could work something out. I think probably where it would hit A little more close to home or those people in the minor leagues perhaps that don't necessarily Mm -hmm. get paid the big league bucks and if they're talking about getting a pay cut and and something like that that could actually affect their ability to live and sustain their financially sustain themselves and their families so it'll be interesting to see how it plays out I, I assume that they'll probably work something out maybe they'll work out a deferral of the payment or you know, some kind of middle ground where they're paid more than half for half the games. But it'll be interesting to see how that goes.
0: Well, and your point's well taken. I mean, these are Major League Baseball players, and in the case of Matt Snell from Tampa Bay, uh, so even if they were to go down this road, uh, yeah, instead of six million, he's going to make three million. I don't know how he's going to make ends meet with th- only three million dollars, Andrew. But you know, that's a challenge. I guess he's going to have to face uh, if that hap- in fact that happens. Anyway, I want to talk about uh, some of the other folks that are going to be impacted by this. Uh, last week, uh, you were talking to us about a, a policy that uh, HBC was um, doing with their employees. Uh, that did not seem fair, and I know there's been some pushback on that. What's the latest?
3: Yeah, so I'll quickly go through that. Sure, (laughs) good idea. uh, any of the viewers missed it. But essentially what uh, Hudson's Bay did was they cut the salary of a a bunch of their employees, many of their employees, to 75%. So they gave them a 25% pay cut, and they told these employees that they were going to do this because it helped them prevent layoffs and terminations. So a lot of the employees accepted the pay cut, and one day after the pay cut took effect, these people were fired, not all of them, but a a fair amount of them were fired, and their severance package was based on 75% of their earnings instead of 100% of their earnings. So essentially, they were provided with a pay cut and then fired and then provided with a discounted severance package. So we've now recently learned that Hudson's Bay sent a memo to those terminated employees um, stating that they'll now... Pay them the twenty-five percent difference uh, that they originally knocked off, so they're going to make them whole, and uh, which is a very good, very good show by them. And, and I guess they realized that uh, probably wasn't the best idea optically, and quite frankly, from a fairness perspective, to do that. So they've they've backtracked on that, and now they're paying out the employees um, that extra twenty-five percent that they had originally cut from them in their severance packages.
0: Is there a barometer and, and a guideline to follow when it comes to severance in situations like that? And I, I know you told us last week, I mean, if you're involved in a union, obviously you've got to go through the union to, to do these sorts of things. That's obviously something that's going to be negotiated. But not all workers, of course, and a lot of the stores or businesses that have been impacted are in unions. But is is there a guideline like, okay, I've been let go, I work for this company for 10 years or 8 years or whatever it might be. What am I entitled to? Well,
3: that's a very good question. So what you're entitled to is, based on a variety of factors. So every, it, it is an entirely unique situation for everyone. So the, the primary factors is if your severance will be based on your age, so the older you are the higher your severance package uh, will be, the more it will be worth. Um, your length of service, the longer your work there, the better the severance package is. What position you had, so the more easily replaceable your position is, uh, the less you'll receive for severance. The more niche and kind of specialized the position you hold is, the the greater the severance package uh, you'll receive. So pretty much age, length of service and your position are going to be the real driving forces in in determining what your severance package is. And I don't know if you know this, but our firm actually has an online severance calculator, Oh, uh, severancepaycalculator.com, where individuals can go and get a, a rough idea of what their severance should be worth. So if you're provided with a severance upon termination and you're questioning it and you don't think it's fair, uh, by all means, visit severancepaycalculator.com, take a look, enter some information, and you'll get a better sense of, of really what you should be getting.
0: I mean, one of the barometers, I guess, that has been bandied about here as well, like one week's pay for per year of service, uh, which I don't think is carved in stone anywhere. But is that is that kind of where you begin with the, the negotiations or these calculations?
3: Not necessarily. So your severance is also going to be be dependent on whether or not you signed a contract when you started your employment, or at mm-hmm. some point thereafter when you got a bonus or a promotion. Um, it's possible that that contract attempts to limit your severance. And if it does that, then it is possible that an individual gets one week per year, but outside of those situations and a lot of those contracts are, are unenforceable, mind you. So even if you do have a contract and it says something about your entitlements being limited, that's certainly something you want to talk to a lawyer about because we can get around a lot of those contracts and and make the arguments that they're unenforceable. Um, in those situations, it's possible you get a week per year, but otherwise, I mean, roughly speaking, you could get about a month per year of service. Now, that's a very generalized assessment, so I don't want anyone thinking, oh, I work for 10 years, I get 10 months, I work for five years, I get five months, but roughly speaking, you'd probably get closer to a month per year than a week per year. So if you're being offered a week per year as severance, certainly discuss that with an employment lawyer before you accept it. Do not sign anything before you accept it, because severance is something where... You know, after speaking to a lawyer, your entitlements can skyrocket. So that's probably one of the best situations where you want to speak to a lawyer. There's the best um, kind of probability that you can do much, much better by doing so.
0: Well, that's an interesting point because I've talked to a number of people that sadly have had that experience. And when you get called into the office and, you know, they lay this paper down in front of you and said, you know, it's time to let you go, sorry. Uh, and you're in shock. I mean, let's face it, it's a very traumatic experience to have to go through something like that. And I know the things that are, are swimming through your head, like, what am I going to do my mortgage and my kids in school, and, and a whole long list of things that just pop into your head. And the temptation might be there. Well, like, I've, I've got to have money. If, if this is what they're offering. I guess I have to sign this right now. Uh, but I guess the advice you're saying here is, Andrew, is don't sign anything in that office that day.
3: Yeah, never never sign anything. Do not sign anything. Um an employer should always give you the opportunity to take at least a few days to consider uh, the package that you're being provided. If you're being pressured to sign the package on spot, all that tells me is that the employer is trying to get away with something, right? Yeah. So if the employer thinks they're being fair and doing the right thing, they should have no problem having you go off for a few days, thinking about your decision, maybe speaking to a lawyer, um, you know, allowing yourself to kind of calm down. As you said, as soon as you're informed that you're terminated, um, that's not a fun time for anyone. You're not really in a, in a great state of mind to be reviewing a, a legal document. So absolutely, the number one rule, do not sign anything unless you have, uh, you know, a lawyer look it over first, or at minimum, you know, you take the time to, to sleep on it and think about it before
0: signing. I, I know some companies, I'm not sure all, but some companies actually do that. They suggest, you know, we'll... we'll... Give you the, the money, whatever it is, for at least an initial consultation. Uh, and some people will take them up on that. I, I usually advise them go find your own lawyer uh, as opposed to somebody that the company recommends. But I guess that's a decision that each individual is going to have to make.
3: Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you're fortunate enough, it, it, that happens sometimes. I mean, it usually happens for individuals who are higher earning than others. I mean, if, for individuals making 40, 45, 50K a year, you don't always see their employer giving them the opportunity to. <laughs> provide them with, you know, two, three hundred, four hundred 300 400 to go off and get a consultation with a lawyer to review it, definitely for individuals that are higher earners. Uh, that's something that's often in their termination package. And uh, again, I can't stress enough that when it comes to severance, that's one time where you absolutely want to get legal advice because, you know, I've seen times where an employee has come to me, a former employee, someone who's been terminated, comes to me with you know, 20000 on the table and we can turn that into 100000 There's, you know, real incremental gains um, that can be achieved by visiting a lawyer and getting their advice with respect to severance. So that's something, and, and again, you never know how long you're going to be unemployed. Um, so you want to make sure that you have the best package possible to support your family and yourself until you do find that next job, which is the whole point of severance in the first
0: place. Some folks don't get, uh, severed right now, but but they have been laid off and we have we've known that there are thousands and thousands of uh, employees uh, or employee uh, here in ontario that are going through that right now but the government at the time uh... put a, a cap on that 13 weeks of course uh, well, that period is coming up for an awful lot of workers what do you do in a situation like that do you get in touch with the employer say you're going to bring me back or not or after 13 weeks has expired are, are you officially unemployed and severed at that stage what's what's their status
3: So that's a very good question. And I think the answer to that depends on what the laid off individual wants to do. So in Ontario, if you're laid the first thing I'll say is in Ontario, if you're laid off for a period temporarily laid off for a period of thirteen weeks and you're not recalled, your employment will be deemed as being terminated. So the whole, you know, reason that you're put on a temporary layoff and the whole purpose is to have it be temporary. So as soon the government essentially through legislation has said we're not going to allow the layoffs more than 13 weeks. If you put someone on a layoff for more than 13 weeks, they'll be considered terminated. Now, there is an exemption to that. If the employer continues your benefits uh, during the temporary layoff, so if you've got health and dental coverage and you continue to receive that coverage during the layoff, they could actually lay you off for up to 35 weeks before your employment is considered mm-hmm. terminated. So I've read a lot of layoff letters from employers and a lot of them are confused, it seems, and they say, oh, we can only lay you off for 13 weeks, but they're continuing that person's benefits, and really they could do it up to 35. Um, but but nevertheless, a lot of people, after 13 weeks passes, they will be considered terminated. And it, what you do is up to you. I mean, if you want to go back to work, and that's what you're gunning for, by all means, you should reach out to the employer and say, hey, the 13 period, uh, 13-week period is elapsing next week. And I want to know what's going on with work. I'd like to come back. And when am I coming back? How, how am I doing that? You know, get some information from the employer. By all means, reach out if your goal is to return to work. Now, there's a lot of people that I, don't, I think don't want to return to their job. Maybe they feel um, betrayed to some degree by being put on a temporary layoff or they thought it was unfair or they thought it was for kind of malicious reasons specific to them. And they don't want to go back. So if you're an individual and 12 weeks have gone by and if 13 weeks go by, you're going to be considered terminated, maybe you just sit there and hope the, the week you know, ticks off and, and you know, you're not called back, in which case uh, you're entitled to a severance package and um, you can you, you look at pursuing that right away. So it really depends what an individual is looking for.
0: But that starts a whole different process in, in, in motion then, doesn't it? I mean, if that comes up and it make you 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 make that phone call and say, yeah, uh, Bill, we're, we're not going to bring you back, uh, then you have to initiate that conversation about severance, or, or would they automatically have to offer you that?
3: After 13 weeks expires, if they're not continuing your benefits, they have to give you uh, a fair severance package. So you're terminated like anyone else that's been terminated in their employment, they have to give you a fair severance package. And if they don't do so, then that's, you certainly have legal recourse to that. It's not a question of, uh, you know, maybe do I get severance, maybe not. No, 13 weeks, if it elapses and your benefits are not being continued while on the layoff, you are owed a severance. And it's, it's very cut and dry in that regard. So um, if the 13 weeks goes by and you reach out to your employer and you say, hey, what's happening here, where's, where's my severance, and they ignore you or they tell you for some reason that you're not owed a severance, um, by all means, if you're an individual in that situation, maybe seek legal counsel to uh, to deal with that.
0: Hard and fast rule. I guess there really are no hard and fast rules, but I mean, if, if this should happen to somebody, and it is happening to people almost on a daily basis now, uh, you don't sign in that office. Uh, you you take it home. Uh, how flexible are these things? I mean, you know, there's probably going to be a dollar figure attached to to what they're saying here. Uh, I I've always because you know, I've talked to a number of people, of course, when we do shows like this, Andrew, that said, well, you know, should I get a lawyer? The best advice is yeah, uh, because they can negotiate. I mean, you've you've been down this road before. You know exactly what's going on here, and there are some things that that you can have discussions about with the, well, I guess, now your ex employer, and that like extension of benefits, maybe more money in the severance package, et cetera. I mean, I'm not they're never going to say there's some flexibility there, but oftentimes the, there is a discussion about that, isn't there?
3: Well, certainly. I mean, at the end of the day we as employment lawyers make an assessment as what your severance should be worth and in doing so we look at what courts have said in the past about people similar to the individual and what that individual has received in severance and we make an argument that their severance should be worth this amount and we're not just pulling these numbers out of thin air and we're not you know the the people forget all the time they think when they pursue a severance it's funny people's mentality because sometimes they think oh i am doing something wrong almost, like going after the employer to get more money, you know, uh, maybe that's that, that's not what I should be doing. But I think people have to keep in mind that you're owed a severance because you earn the severance. You're owed a severance because you work at the company for a certain length of time, you're a certain age, and you performed a certain job. So you earn that severance. And, you know, it really depends on how reasonable the employer is when they offer you your severance package. So, Sometimes employers will lowball people across the board. And the, for those that come back with a the lawyer, they end up paying those people out. And I think the hope is if there's if they say an employer fires 20 people during the year and they lowball all 20 during their uh, termination, offer all 20 very lowball severance packages, but 10 people are too timid to fight it and they just accept it, that means the employer is in the green. They're profiting because they're like, sweet, sure. we just got 10 people to take a crappy severance package. Even if the other 10 come back with a lawyer and we got to pay our lawyer a bit of money to deal with them, we can pay those people out. We can pay our lawyer. We're still coming out ahead because it would have cost us more if we just offered fair severance packages across the board in the first place. So there's oftentimes room. You're entitled to all your compensation uh, in terms of your severance. So if you got benefits, if you got RSP contributions, pension contributions... Car allowances, everything that formed your compensation with the company, uh, you can go after all of that as part of your severance package. So, you know that's a big one too. Bonuses are a huge one because if you made you know sixty k a year, but you also in a base salary, but you also made a forty thousand dollar bonus. If an employer comes to you and says, "We think you're owed a year of severance," here's a year pay, and they give you just base salary, and you you come to me as an individual and say, "Well, is a year fair?" and I say, "Yeah, but." you should get a year of your full compensation, including your bonus. So now you're arguing about the bonus, which is worth $40,000, which is quite significant, right? Mm So you wanna make sure that the, again, you can go on severancepaycalculator.com, see if the overall uh, severance is fair, and then you can speak to a lawyer and try to get everything that you uh, deserve. And there often is flexibility, and how far it goes is really up to the individual. How far they wanna push it is up to the individual. And um, But more often than not, we are certainly able to improve uh, the packages that people come to us with.
0: Exactly. Andrew, as always, thanks so much for this. We're a little tight for time. Andrew Goldberg is an employment lawyer and associate at mark Tumarkin LLP. Employmentlawyer.ca, by the way, is a website that you can go to to get some more information. Uh, have a great week, Andrew. We'll talk to you again in a few days. Yeah, for sure. You as well, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday on the program, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger joined us. We talked about a number of things. One of them was uh, the Commonwealth Games bid, which started off as Hamilton 100, uh, looking at the 2030 Games. Uh, which seems to have uh, morphed into the 2026 game for reasons we'll explain in just a couple of minutes. But I asked Mayor Eisenberger at the time uh, if he and the rest of the council are ready to have this discussion and pursue this possibility. Here's what he had to say.
1: Certainly doesn't have the kind of uh, 100th anniversary cachet that the, uh, the 2030 date would have. But if there's a uh an economic advantage here, and maybe in terms of timing, uh, you know, might improve our opportunity to get the kind of economic stimulus that uh, this could provide. Uh, I, I think there's absolute merit in looking
2: at that.
0: Well, uh, to that point, uh, we had promised you yesterday that we were going to bring Lou party back to the program. Lou is a spokesman with the Hamilton 100 team. Uh, Lou, first of all, so much uh, going on these days. I'm glad you've got some time to talk with us today. How are you doing?
1: Well, thank you very much for having me.
0: This is an interesting time, and I know that we've you know, been talking about the possibility of the 2026 games. Uh, we wanted to have you on the program yesterday, and of course you were on a conference call talking about this very topic. Maybe you could give us an update as to where we stand on this right now, Lou.
1: Well, there's a great deal to catch your listeners up on. Good. The first thing is to, is to announce a different uh, position for me, and that is uh, now being um, a spokesman for the Hamilton 2026 Commonwealth Games Bid Corporation. We've had to take the step, given um, the success that we've had in moving the project forward to incorporate a new not-for-profit around the 26 games while preserving the entity that is there and, and will and can compete for 2030 in the event 26 games don't go on. So um, uh, wh- where can I start? There was a very significant report that was released, um, was released today, as a matter of fact, although covered mm-hmm. by the media yesterday, that was put up by the Federation called the Commonwealth Games Value Framework Report. And it's an exhaustive report prepared by PwC looking at the last four significant Commonwealth Games to assess the financial impact for those host communities. And David Grevenberg, the federation CEO, has been speaking to Canadian media and others about the findings in that report, which are now public. Um, Those those insights uh, are incredibly relevant to the decision that this region has to make about the financial implications and benefits of the Games. So that's a huge development we've had an enormous amount of progress in working with Commonwealth Sports Canada on a new and revised sports program for 26. And although we can't make that public at this point, I can tell you that that program uh, is more modest in size. We're reducing the number of, of events and the number of athletes in order to reduce costs. We have some preliminary decisions and thoughts around venues, not only in the Hamilton area, but in communities adjacent to Hamilton as a way of regionalizing both the risk and the opportunity uh, we've uh, heard from the federal government and they've conveyed to Commonwealth Sport Canada that they are prepared to support uh, our taking on the 26 games uh, if the province were to do likewise, and that's a very encouraging development. And uh, we've been otherwise working with a variety of stakeholders and groups uh, in the city to educate them about um, the opportunity and to secure their support. And we've had a litany of those significant anchor institutions and others step up to say that they're very supportive of 26 and we'll be posting those letters uh, in due course. So a lot has, has happened. We're very excited. We feel that there's considerable momentum, and um, you know we think there's a very good possibility that this can happen.
0: A couple of things I wanted to talk about here with to do this, and, and you mentioned David Gervenberg, of course, the the CEO for the uh, Commonwealth Games Federation. Uh, when you talked about a, a revised 2026 bid here and, and maybe downsizing him, although that may be too strong a word for what you're doing uh, with a, a 2026 Games, uh, you're doing that with the blessing of the, of the CGF, are you not? I mean, it's not as if you're saying, this is all we can give you right now. They, they understand the economic situation that you or anybody else, I guess, globally is going to be under t- uh, for the next few years, I would think.
1: Yes, and of course it speaks to how remarkable this opportunity is in that they have approached us and are working very closely with us to see whether we can put on those 26 games. This is unprecedented, really, certainly in Hamilton's history, and to have the close collaboration of the Federation's leadership in Commonwealth Sport and their flexibility in coming up with a solution that's optimal and appropriate for this region at this time Uh, is just it's incredible and they have been not only flexible but supportive creative Um, they worked with us and other stakeholders to to come to a solution for this region i think that is appropriate to this time and and um, uh, essential in my view in in, in our securing this opportunity and the benefits that it provides so we we owe them a debt of gratitude and very much enjoyed the collaboration that they've provided
0: the uh the report that you talked about here Lou I think is is very instructive uh, the commonwealth games value framework report uh, there are those who, and I've heard from them and I'm sure you have over the last couple of weeks or months now that are saying look there's no way we should be doing this we're into economic recovery uh, we can't afford to be buying this and we can't afford to be putting this kind of money towards something like this when we have so many other needs but if they go through this uh, this uh, value framework report they're going to see that there is an economic benefit and uplift to these communities that have been involved in this and it's it's not the the money that some people seem to think it is. There's certainly going to be upfront costs, but there are dividends that, that come back to the community, aren't there?
1: Very significant. And, and let me just touch on a couple of the key ones and, and address the point head on that you raised a moment ago. And that is that across the board, these events uh, have transformed the communities in which they've been, uh, they've been hosted uh, in a variety of ways. And of course, most critically to us in this region right now is economic investment, infrastructure, development, and employment. And in that regard, the report shows That, For example, on average, you see somewhere between 13,000 and 23,000 full-time equivalent years of employment associated with the games before, during, and after. You see increases in GDP or gross domestic product associated with the games of anywhere from $1 to $2 billion dollars you have the ability to catalyze and secure investment from the private sector that's global and not just regional as a result of the magnitude of the games. It results in tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars in investment in the community. And So the conversation that we're wanting to have, uh, acknowledging head-on that folks are concerned about risk, is a different risk, and that is, what is the risk of not taking advantage of this opportunity for this region? I think it's easy to conceptualize the risks that might be associated in assuming some of the cost and taking this on, uh, but what are the risks of not doing that, of taking what is an unprecedented opportunity to be given games of this magnitude with all of its benefits and turning it away? Uh, what are the risks to the community in terms of employment and thousands of young people who as volunteers will develop skills the benefits to the educational institutions in our region, um, to jobs, to our tourism, our sports industries, uh, and not for nothing, but just the hope and optimism that something of this magnitude for this region can instill in this community, and those risks are risks that need to be balanced in this conversation. They're a little harder to get your head around, but they're critically important to understand, because I think, and many of us think, including many of our anchor institutions, that this is an opportunity that we cannot afford to lose.
0: And those educational uh, facilities and, and partners that you've talked about, McMaster and Mohawk, of course, are on side and, and have been from the beginning. Uh, one of the things that jumped out at me here was was tourism, and I know that that's uh, a, a, probably a, an industry that's going to take a hit because of what's happening with the pandemic. We all know that. But uh, the, the numbers don't lie here. It's revealed that the event has uh, led to increases in tourism up to 25 percent up to three years after the event. And we saw that, if I can just dabble into ancient history here for a second, when uh, Hamilton hosted the World Road Cycling Championships, a number of years ago uh when i talked to the economic development department they told us that there were still people that were calling them and saying we saw this and and from all over the world and we watched the site that hamilton looks like a great city and it did lead to not just tourism but investment in in new businesses here so there's there's an economic uplift that actually seems to follow through and we've seen it happen with glasgow with a number of other cities that have hosted the games previously
1: That's a very good point, Bill. And and of course, that's true. A couple of points I would make on top of that is that the the finalization or creation construction of these facilities on an accelerated time frame also puts our region in the position of securing other events and having the benefit of those facilities years in advance when we might have had them had we secured 2030, which, as you know, was very much in doubt. We were Canada's preferred bid city, but there will be great global competition, we might not have it. So we'd have the benefit of this infrastructure and and the tourism and event programming that it permits years in advance of of when would otherwise be the case. And you'll also know from the report that the report shows that in each of those other host cities, trade and investment in those regions increased almost to the tune of a billion dollars for the host city. And this is important, I think, for your listeners to understand, because a very hot topic of discussion among business leaders in this region, including those at City Hall before the pandemic, and now I think accelerated after, is the quality and strength of the city's brand on the world stage as a place to do business, to invest, to get educated, to innovate, to live. And we have, candidly, not fared well globally in comparison to competitors regionally and and, and around the world. And uh, our business leaders, uh, and I think those at economic development understand that, we've been working to correct that. In this event, um, and the interest it creates over a billion spectators, hundreds if not thousands of companies globally, um, this creates an enormous amount of attention around investment, innovation, our leading companies A wonderful place to live and to do business. And I think also for the province, communicating that same message on a global stage. And it is a way of separating the value proposition for our region beyond the clutter of other cities and other communities at at a time of need. And so this presents enormous, I think, legacy opportunities by every measure for this region that we're really enthusiastic to pursue.
0: Well, there's another element, too. Let me ask you about the economic realities here. As, as we uh, try to climb out of this pandemic and the economic problems that, that, that are going to ensue here, and we're, I think, well aware of a lot of those, uh, there is going to be government assistance. We know that from the federal and provincial governments to help everybody in this province, in this country, get back on their feet, Lou. But historically, it's going to be very difficult for Hamilton and other cities to compete for those dollars. It's, it's not a, an infinite amount of money that's going to be available. But if there's an, a Commonwealth Games bid attached to those requests, uh, that puts us in a different lane, doesn't it? It, it? Almost an express lane, more than some of the other communities that may not have that for infrastructure dollars
1: yeah and I think if you're if you're looking at this from the government perspective, uh, if I can be that presumptuous you, you want to know that there's going to be a significant return on that investment. One of the yeah. beauties of the games and its magnitude is that it allows uh, you to align and to work together to deal with issues like transportation infrastructure, which would also be a deliverable within the games context in a way that that I think presents much greater value money um, by every level of government, including the city, that would be put into the games um, to deal with things that we al- already need to have addressed, present the opportunity of, of returning many times the value of that investment globally. And if you have to make the argument about the investment of, of, of money, whether it's to a private company operating globally or to government, doing it in the context of the games with a brand prominence and value that that institution has globally is a compelling business argument around investment.
0: Well, and we've seen that with some of the folks that are on board, and I know that, uh, that, that more details to come, of course, in the, in the coming days and weeks. Uh, I, I saw the letter from our, our good friend Joe Mancinelli at Leuna, uh, and Joe, of course, has been on side for this right from the beginning, because, and let's get to the bottom. Cha- I mean, this, this is going to mean a lot of work for Leuna and a lot of other people in the city, and, uh, it, you know, for people that have been laid off, people that may ha- be having to look for other jobs right now, uh, a, a project of this magnitude, Lou, is an opportunity for employment. Jobs that heretofore may not even be in this community are going to be be here to build and to maintain these facilities
1: yes and of course when those facilities are built and maintained and when we've seen improvements to transportation infrastructure in the region uh, when we have uh, additional hotel and convention capacity It it, it is a tie that lifts all boats, right? These are benefits that will accrue to this community indefinitely, and not for nothing, but one of the issues that this city faces, thats a significant one, is the retention of our young people who are educated at our institutions and leave Hamilton to find work elsewhere. Doing something this transformative is a way of keeping those young people who are critical to our future engaged in our community in something that is positive and unlifting, and I think the human capital side of this equation and the benefits that it brings to this region is perhaps as important as the financial capital argument.
0: You've uh, made one presentation for the the 2030, the Hamilton 100 Group. Now that this has been revised, Lou, uh, is there a a plan to go back in front of City Council again to talk about what's going on?
1: Yes, uh, there is. We're waiting to hear from the provincial government. uh, We've got a little bit of work to do in finalizing the programming, but our intention and expectation is that we'll go back before council and staff to present what it is that we're proposing and dialogue with them. And we are also going to invite Mr. Grevenberg and the Federation to be a participant. And I think that's relatively unprecedented in a conversation around how it is that we can do this together in a way that minimizes risk and and I think elevates the opportunity for the region. And um, very much appreciated the mayor's leadership and his encouragement to us. Uh, We know that city council and staff have worked incredibly hard on the pandemic and we certainly appreciate their leadership there. But now is the time to rebuild and conversations about what's next and how we are going to not only survive, but excel and compete, I, I think is going to be squarely before council. And we think we have a very, very powerful answer to those questions.
0: Got about a minute left here. I want to get you to address one concern that I heard anecdotally from one of the counselors. Is, uh, this is four years before. We, we, we were kind of getting our heads around 2030, 2026. He expressed to me, he says, I don't know if we have enough time to get everything ready. I don't think you share that concern, do you?
1: No, and of, of course, we've worked in partnership with Commonwealth Sport and the Federation to come up with a games program that allows for the time that we have. Um, and you know we have the ability to regionalize as we're doing some aspects of the programming uh, to ensure that we'll be in a position to participate. So we have every confidence that the time, although a little bit compressed, uh, is manageable. And frankly, it's a gift in the sense that now we will be able to get to work if we're able to make this happen within months in a way that provides opportunity and employment in the region and to have this asset these assets and infrastructure ready uh, in twenty six, not too soon, really, for the benefit of this region. So, Um, we have every confidence that that's not going to be a problem.
0: Uh, Exciting times, uh, transformational times, if if fact council wants to go ahead, and hopefully they will, and we'll stay in touch as this uh, evolves over the next uh, little while. Lou, thanks, as always, for the update, and it's always a pleasure to have you on the program.
1: And thank you for your interest. appreciate it very much.
0: Take care. Lou Fiporti, who is the spokesman now for the Hamilton 2026 Commonwealth Games bid.